Hello, I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. We're doing something a little different this week. We are joined by Rusty Brown of the Freedom Foundation for a bit of government worker union wonkery. Brown and his colleagues have been researching certain financial products that the National Education Association markets to its members, and they have many questions about how it all works and whether members are being taken for a ride. Uh, Rusty, before we get to your research, could you tell us a little bit about your background and the work you do for Freedom Foundation? Uh, yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Really appreciate being here. Really appreciate the uh, the interest that you have in the issue. Um, so, Freedom Foundation is a uh, we're a, a nonprofit. Uh, before my time at the Freedom Foundation, somewhere in the early teens, we uh, they decided that it was one of the biggest issues uh, facing you know America is the government sector unions. Um, unlike the private sector. Uh, where if you just cut through all the propaganda, uh, unions are bargaining with an employer over profits. In the government, there's no such thing. There's only budgets. And when you have a third-party company, which is what a union is, bargaining with the government, where you only have budgets, that gives the incentive for the for the, the corporation, the union, to grow the government. And when the government grows, they then impose additional regulations on us and our businesses. And then, and then and then you have, of course, the issue where the government worker unions support the campaigns of the people with whom they negotiate. Right, right. And, that, and that's a whole nother issue of whether or not they even uh, represent their members properly uh, the way that they should be. Um, and that's uh, that's a whole can of worms that we could have a whole discussion on or or two or three over many hours. <laughs> <laughs> So, so you, so you have been looking into this value builder plan. Yes. What is it, and how is it related to the NEF? Okay, so there's a couple, there's a couple things we need to unpack. So, first of all, National Education Association, uh, largest teachers union in the country, um, largest union period. Last I checked, uh, I think you might be right. Uh, the, the only one that could possibly rival that would be the electrical workers, but I would have to check the current data to see. Uh, but yes, they are definitely among the top biggest unions in the country. Um, the National Education Association owns a, a subsidiary called NEA Member Benefit Corporation. Um, it's not a union. It is a, a company that exists to peddle investment products, credit cards, things like that to its members. Um, and this is not this is not the teachers' pension plan, which are all run by the states. This is nope. something different. Yep, so, totally different. Uh, it, it is private investments. Uh, and, and I mean, there is a range of investments. I wouldn't even begin to tell you what all they have. I mean, NEA member benefit as it by itself, I believe uh, the most recent financial statements that I saw was I think from 2019 or 2020, um, they, they bring in hundreds of millions of dollars in their own right, like unrelated to NEA and their dealings. So we're talking about a really large corporation, you know, as a, as a subsidiary of NEA. Um, one of the plans that is within that is, uh, called Value Builder Portfolio. Value Builder has been around for quite some time. I don't know uh, when the exact inception was. Uh, I started tracking it in 2000 when it was sold by Nationwide to a company called Security Benefit. Um, at the time, I believe it had about $800 million in the portfolio. Uh, five years later, uh, and this is kind of where the squirreliness begins, uh, at least from from what I can tell, this is there's a lot of questions as you as you put. 
Anybody in the world of labor relations that does anything meaningful has to file financial disclosures with the Department of Labor. Unions do it. Employers do it. The hire persuaders that give money to unions, vendors, things like that. Uh, the security benefit filed an LM10, which is an employer filing. This, this is all. This is all under the Labor Management Reporting and Disclosure Act. That Correct. that law that basically gives us a, a look into the internals of union finance, and then also, you know, uh, you mentioned persuaders, the consultants mm-hmm. who may present employer cases to employees considering unionizing. Correct. Yeah, there, there's a whole host of different filings, um, and they all do different things. Um, but so the one of them is an LM10, which is the employer filing, uh, as well as if you have to file if you give money to a union, um, which is what Security Benefit did. In 2005, they gave the union roughly $100,000. So two years, uh, two years later, in 2007, a lawsuit was filed called uh, Daniels Hall versus the National Education Association. The lawsuit alleged that uh, the value builder portfolio charged exorbitant fees. Uh, the New York Times had a, a big article on this at the time uh, that uh, quoted some of the some of the plans uh, within value builder uh, charged fees in excess of 10 percent, 10 times higher than any comparable plan. So, I mean, it's it's impossible to make a profit long term if you're paying 10 percent in fees. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. So they sued. Uh, they sued uh, for a breach of fiduciary duty uh, under the ERISA Act. Unfortunately, it was tossed out due to lack of jurisdiction, simply because ERISA doesn't have a fiduciary duty section that would uh, pertain to the union relationship. For, with for, our, for our listeners, ERISA is a federal law that regulates retirement plans, is my understanding. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. ERISA, uh, I believe it's uh, managed by uh, EBSA. Uh, so, uh, employee benefits securities administration, maybe something like that. Um, another, another, uh, law enforcement agency under DOL that investigates, uh, uh pensions and, and things like that. Uh, ERISA is, uh, like I said, it, it didn't have a fiduciary duty. I am not an expert on ERISA, by the way, but <laughs> did not have a fiduciary duty, uh, section to it that would pertain to a union's relationship with its members. So it was tossed out. From what I could tell, the lawsuit was never picked up. Uh, back to you know a point that you kind of alluded to a minute ago. Uh, presumably, LMRDA would have been a better path because it absolutely does have that fiduciary duty um, that uh, the unions have to adhere to. Um, why why they chose to sue under ERISA, I have no idea, um, and why they didn't just pick it up and sue under a different statute. Uh, again, I have no idea. Um, but two years later. Um, the, the lawsuit alleged that security benefit was giving now $2 million to the NEA uh, as, as kickbacks, essentially, for, um, for, for you know, marketing these products to its members. Uh, at the time, the lawsuit also uh, claimed that this uh, the value builder now had over a billion dollars in it. So, I mean, that was in 2007. Uh, presumably, it would have probably maybe double that by now, if not more. Um, so we're talking about a whole lot of money here, you know, billions of dollars. And um, unfortunately, between 2005 and 2019, uh, Security Benefit did not file any financial disclosures with the Department of Labor. 
However, in 2019 through 2021, uh, the payments are still going to NEA uh, in their most recent filings. And now the sum is five, six million dollars a year. So presumably it's continued throughout this time period and um, escalating up from, you know, 100,000 the first year in 2005 uh, to now millions of dollars a year. Um, so the relationship between security benefit and NEA is still strong. And, and you can actually find that on NEA member benefits website as well. Uh, if you pull it up, security benefit is, is right there on the front of the page. Um, hmm. So then value builder, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, security benefit was then sued again uh, in 2020 uh, with the exact same allegations. Although this time the NEA was not named directly. So, you know, all the plaintiffs are not necessarily, you know, investing through value builder, but it had the exact same allegations as the 2007 lawsuit, exorbitant fees, no interest paid. In fact, the, the worst one of the plaintiffs that I saw, I believe it was a class action. It was two lawsuits rolled into one class action. I think there was eight or nine plaintiffs. One of them had invested a million dollars into one of their plans and over five years from 2014 to 2019 were credited with 0% interest. Those are great stock market years. And, you know, the only reason that you wouldn't have earned any money on that is if you, I, I mean, I, I, is if somebody was taking it from you. I mean, that's, I'm, I'm definitely making a big assumption here, but I, I can't think of a better Yeah, you're, 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 you're not keeping with the, you know, oftentimes financial people will compare how did you do versus the S&P 500 because the S&P 500 is seen as sort of like the baseline of what the market did. Uh, you would have done, you know, they zero percent in those years was was not what the S and P did. <laughs> no, not at all. No, those were great years. And so, no, it definitely wasn't keeping up with the market. I mean, we were it, full scale in, in an upswing from you know the the Great Recession that hit, and what was that? Oh eight or oh nine, oh seven, somewhere in that range. Um, and uh, you know, we had taken the downturn, and we were on a heavy upswing that, you know, continued really until uh, 2020. And then now it's gotten really goofy since then. But um, yeah, that, no, great stock market years. I mean, they were, you know, I've heard them refer to, referred to as dartboard years <laughs> where you could have just picked anything you wanted and it probably would have uh, earned you money. But apparently not, uh, not anything that security benefit had to offer, <laughs> unfortunately. Um but 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 this is where we have lots of questions. Um, you know, clearly the relationship between security benefit and NEA still exists. Uh, the lawsuits allegations also said that you know that it's never disclosed that the amount of kickbacks that NEA is receiving from security benefit for marketing these products. Um, something I, I failed to mention uh, when I first was explaining Value Builder. So Value Builder, uh, it's a collection of different investments, but you can. Uh, I believe you can invest in it directly, but it's also an option when they fill out their 403B paperwork when they're when they're first getting hired or doing their benefits every year. So, again, presumably, like they're heavily encouraged, and this is what the lawsuit said that they're heavily encouraged to invest in these. Like you know, the the union organizer that's you know telling them to join is saying you also need to put your money into Value Builder uh, through your 403B, and um, you know, and that and that brings up another question. I mean, are these uh, are these uh, union organizers licensed financial advisors? Are they are they legally allowed to be giving out that kind of advice? I mean, what are the repercussions for uh, telling somebody to join this plan? You know, from a you know what is perceived to be a position of authority, probably to a new hire teacher or 
um, you know, somebody that would be a member of the NEA. Uh, you know, you got the the organizer that, you know, you would think they would know what they're talking about, saying this is what you need to put your money. And, you know, it, it's endorsed by a, a major corporation. I mean, the NEA is absolutely a major corporation. So, Sarah, uh, I'm also joined by my colleague, Sarah Lee. Uh, Sarah, do you have any uh, either feedback or questions for Rusty? I do, and um, I feel kind of um, like I'm sitting in the the seat of people who are not labor experts and get to sort of ask questions about the sort of vagaries and the labyrinthine, you know, lawsuits you just mentioned. Um, So the two things that pop out to me just listening to this and having also read the white paper that you sent um, us as kind of background is, um, first of all, the question that I have is if the NEA, if you're a member of the NEA and you uh, become aware of these kinds of lawsuits because Value Builder is giving kickbacks and you're not receiving, you know, what you should be receiving out of the relationship, how difficult is it to get out of that relationship? That's the first question. And then secondly, um, do they make it easy on you to just say, you know what, I just don't want to be a part of this union anymore. And then the second observation, really, not really a question is, you know, as someone who kind of uh, has been watching the teachers unions lately, um, certainly through COVID, uh, the, the entire messaging that they have is that we're here for our members. We are, you know, that's what we care about. We're a labor union. We care about those people. And this situation, I mean, I, I read where they actually, um, in your white paper, said, uh, we didn't know. We didn't know that this was happening. They kind of claimed ignorance. So they kind of just passed the buck, which I think is pretty clear that they don't care about their members. They're, they're not even accepting responsibility for what's going on here. So um, the first question is, <clears throat> if you've been tricked into doing this, how can you get out? And secondly, um, is this kind of just the way that the, the the unions now are? They don't really care. They're so huge. They care about their kickbacks. They don't be- care very much about their members. So, um, yeah, those are those are definitely two completely different questions and points. <laughs> so I'll address the first one first. How easy is it to get out? Um, I don't know. I'm not a teacher myself. I, I actually did reach out to the NEA and the NEA member benefit. Um, neither responded to me for comment, and that was over a month ago. Uh, they had plenty of opportunity to do it. But, you know, but all I asked was I, I wasn't even – I mean, I'm sure they saw the Freedom Foundation in my email and decided they didn't want to talk to me. But, you know, all I said was, you know, hey, I, I came across these articles and I see you're, you know, you still have a relationship with Security Benefit. Have you taken steps to ensure that, uh, you know, your members are not getting ripped off by these plans? No, no response, Bill, no response at all to that. Um, so, you know, how, what they've done to fix it, it you know, I, I really couldn't say. Um, only they could say. Um, but they cannot plead ignorance anymore because they've been sued over it. The relationship with security benefit has continued, uh, continues to this day. And uh, so they can't say anymore that they didn't know about it. Um, That's not going to fly. And security benefit has now been the the subject of two lawsuits, at least uh, that I've found to, you know, with the exact same allegations. Now to your other point, you know, that kind of goes back to, you know, Freedom Foundation and, and what we stand for and that there's a big uh, there's a big issue and a big difference between government unions and private sector unions. Government unions. Uh, I mean, this is something I could honestly never prove. But if you if you look at it from a 
business perspective, they actually don't even have an incentive to maximize uh, the employee's pay because most union dues are capped at a certain amount um, by their own constitutions or bylaws or uh, collective bargaining agreements or whatever. So at a certain point, you know, maybe there is more money on the table for pay raises, but maybe the union would be bargaining for more jobs instead um, because, it, you know, it just doesn't make sense past a certain point. Um, that's and certainly you all, going you also down. See, a, you also see it in some of these cases where, you know, the question, you know, a, a, a state or a locality will put more money on the table for teachers, but in exchange for some union security concessions and the unions, that is always a non-starter. Yeah. In fact, I actually had a meeting with a former teacher yesterday. Uh, I was down in Florida and I forgot what uh, what the year was that this happened, but uh, the then governor of Florida had come up with a $5,000 uh, raise, essentially, per teacher um, throughout the entire state of Florida. And uh, it, it just ended up going into the pool to be bargained over. And by the time it was all said and done, he ended up with an extra 200 bucks, like 200, it was $200 and change. So yeah, no, they don't, they don't want to see... Uh, they don't want to see the the you know the the administration, the school board, the state uh, taking care of its teachers properly because that would completely defeat their their narrative that they feed. Uh, their their model doesn't work without an adversary, which is one of the funniest things in the world. Because if you track campaign finance, like they they pay to have all the school boards elected, and then, and then they then say that their enemy, that's their enemy, is just it's so My- funny. And why Max, Max Eden of Max Eden of AEI uh, and some colleagues, some colleagues and co-authors of his. I think they found that it was something like seventy percent uh, of teachers union endorsed school board candidates won. That would not shock me at all. I, I don't know of anyone else that really gets as involved in those races uh, as unions do. And, and right, rightfully so. I mean, I mean, I mean, even this, even the schedule, even the scheduling of elections in like off years and with block voting mm-hmm. and with uh, uh, and with nonpartisan races, you know, you can get some pretty really conservative areas that are electing teachers union slates because they don't know any better. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know, they, they don't know. They don't know who the who the candidates who are aligned with their interests are. Well, then that leads me to another question, which is the discussion. I know that it happens out there. I'm by no means a union expert. That's Mike. Um, but I know enough about it to know that some of the debate out there is have unions outlive their purpose. Right. So is that what we're talking about here? Have they 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 were originally um, you know, designed for certain things. And now they've just become these gigantic monster, you know, uh, organizations that are just really in it for themselves. That's a, that's a really complicated answer. And unfortunately there's not a straight one, uh, because it's kind of like, um, McDonald's is a bad You've got a government, but you've got a government worker, private sector worker problem too. Yeah. Yeah. Back in the back in the day, you know, back in the day, you had, you know, even somebody like FDR, big fan of private sector unions, who said, "I'm sorry, this just doesn't translate to the government." Yeah, and you know, well, well, I would say that, you know, I, I do a lot of reading and writing in, er, you know, in sort of early pre 1930 labor history. You know, you look and you see, yeah, there were real abuses that had to be dealt with by somebody, but they've been dealt with. 
Right. And they've, they've passed laws to protect people from the, you know, uh, horrific working conditions that existed in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and the Industrial Revolution and that kind of thing. No, that, that world doesn't exist anymore. You know, but I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's actually a really simple concept. Uh, it's just a, it's, it's hard to, you just can't answer your exact question with a straight answer. Because unions are made up of people. Some people do a better job than others. Um, I think trade unions, for example, like plumbers and pipe fitters, welders, uh, they they do a great job for their members. They actually they they have apprenticeship programs. They teach people a valuable uh, uh, skill that we're I mean, by the day, growing a bigger and bigger shortage of skilled trades, and they they and do a decent I mean, job. And they're generally, and I say generally, not the subject of major corruption either. Um, but when you get to like unions like the SEIU that, you know, they, they try to track down home health care workers and home child care workers that are at home trying to take care of, you know, uh, a sick kid or their mom or grandmother or something like that. And they've just found a back door to skim a couple hundred million dollars out of the Medicaid fund. Uh, yeah, I, I would say if that's how they're earning their money now, they've outlived their usefulness. There, there are in, there are industries where collective bargaining, either because that's just how it's evolved over a hundred years, or because of something peculiar to the industry, makes sense. I actually think like base the baseball players' association, whatever you think of the baseball players' association as an institution, the idea that players when they get traded are still covered by the same general agreements probably functions best for everybody. But, you know, you have the SCIU out there, you know, that Rusty just mentioned saying they want unions for all and they want sectoral bargaining. They want the communications workers of America, these crazy left-wingers, you know, setting a master contract for people who write opinions on the internet for a living. You know, that is a entirely different kettle of fish. Yes, absolutely. Well said. Well, um, you know, I, I'm glad that I could sit in as sort of the um, the non-expert because I know these are such complicated questions. Um, and this is such an interesting, you know, story it, because it's it's this one plan within a number of plans within a gigantic union. So it could very easily be lost. And so it's really, really important I think that this is getting highlighted because like I said, the thing that jumped out at me was that the union officials were like, oh, we didn't know. We didn't know that this was, you know, although they were taking the money, but then they passed the buck and that's in your white my, paper. I guess, my, yeah. I guess my, my question, my sort of final question on the value builder uh, issue for Rusty would be if you were a, if you were in a position to investigate, what do you think are the most important questions that need to be asked? The most important question would be, have they corrected the fact that the teachers were at least at one time getting ripped off? Uh, the lawsuit certainly makes that allegation pretty clear to me, and it wasn't dismissed on the merits of the case. It was a lack of jurisdiction. So, I mean, that is question number one. I mean, all the other things aside, are the teachers' money being invested into a a sound vehicle? I mean, that's number one. Uh, if the answer to that is no, that they haven't done anything except for, you know, up the ante on on their marketing efforts and and uh, you know, uh, more than triple their kickbacks, then uh, okay, 
well, then we really need to make some changes here. Uh, so, I mean, that needs to be, that needs to be looked at, um, I think very, very seriously. And then, you know, another point that I had made is who is telling these teachers to, to invest in this? I mean, at what level and should that be allowed? Um, you know, do they have the proper licensing? I highly doubt it. Um, and should there be some kind of repercussions or, you know, was it such widely used that, you know, maybe that's not honestly feasible, um, maybe it should be anyway. I don't know. Uh, but something that, that needs to be addressed. All right. Well, uh, before we let you go, what other, you know, major developments in government worker unions, uh, are you guys following sort of right now as we record, you know, in February, 2023? Oh, uh, we've got a number of projects. Um, personally, this is a big one that I'm, that I'm working on. Uh, we have, uh, some legislation in three different States we're looking into, um, Florida, Montana, and, uh, Texas. Um, and then I had a, uh, another article published and this is kind of on the, on the Texas front. There's a big push to, uh, ban or at least severely limit taxpayer funded lobbying in Texas. And, um, you know, I, I made the point that, uh, this is, this is like national school boards association kind of stuff. Well, yeah, but also cities, uh, the, the argument is that may, uh, you know, big cities spend, and I think somebody tracked it down. It was like a hundred million dollars or something like that on lobbyists, um, for in, in Texas alone. Like this is just Texas. Wow. I think it was 75 to a hundred million, somewhere in that range. Uh, and you know, but I mean, put it in perspective, you know, Texas, one of the biggest things that they're, you know, pass every couple of years when they're in session is, a over $200 billion budget. So, you know, spending a hundred million to get your piece of that. Yeah. You know, again, does it make sense? But the argument is that it un, it's unfair to the big cities or for the big, you know, it's the smaller cities that can't afford, you know, the lobbyists to come in there and make their voice heard and things like that. Um, but the point that I've made is that uh, you can't look at taxpayer funded lobbyists without going back to the unions. The unions spend, I think, uh, at my paper, it was $750 million nationally on lobbying efforts and gifts, grants, and contributions to political organizations, um, which eclipses Big Pharma's lobbying budget of about $350 million last year. So... They need to be included in that conversation. Uh, All right. Well, thanks again to Rusty Brown of the Freedom Foundation for joining us. That's our show for this week. We encourage our listeners to subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a podcast.